Day Two, the Sixth Story of the Decameron. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Decameron by Giovanni Boccaccio, translated by G. M. Rigg. Day Two, the Sixth Story. Madame Beritola loses two sons, is found with two kids on an island, goes thence to Lunigiana, where one of her sons takes service with her master and lies with his daughter, for which he is put in prison. Sicily rebels against King Charles, the son is recognized by the mother, marries the master's daughter, and, his brother being discovered, is reinstated in great honor. The ladies and the young men alike had many a hearty laugh over Friamita's narrative of Andreuccio's adventures, which ended, Emilia, at the queen's command, thus began. Grave and grievous are the vicissitudes with which fortune makes us acquainted, and as discourse of such matter serves to awaken our minds, which are so readily lulled to sleep by her flatteries, I deem it worthy of attentive hearing by all, whether they enjoy her favour or endure her frown, in that it ministers counsel to the one sort and consolation to the other wherefore albeit great matters have preceded it i mean to tell you a story not less true than touching of adventures whereof the issue was indeed felicitous but the antecedent bitterness so long drawn out that scarce can i believe that it was ever sweetened by ensuing happiness dearest ladies you must know that after the death of the emperor frederick the second the crown of sicily passed to manfred whose favour was enjoyed in the highest degree by a gentleman of naples Arighetto Capecci, by name, who had to wife Madonna Beritola Caricciola, a fair and gracious lady, likewise a Neapolitan. Now, when Manfred was conquered and slain by King Charles I at Benevento, and the whole realm transferred its allegiance to the conqueror, Arighetto, who was then governor of Sicily, no sooner received the tidings than he prepared for instant flight knowing that little reliance was to be placed on the fleeting faith of the sicilians and not being minded to become a subject of his master's enemy but the sicilians having intelligence of his plans he and many other friends and servants of king manfred were surprised taken prisoners and delivered over to king charles to whom the whole island was soon afterwards surrendered in this signal reversal of the wonted course of things madame beritola knowing not what was become of Arighetto, and from the past ever occurring future evil, lest she should suffer foul dishonour, abandoned all that she possessed, and, with a son of perhaps eight years, Giusfredi by name, being also pregnant, fled in a boat to Lipari, where she gave birth to another male child, whom she named Outcast. Then, with her sons and a hired nurse, she took ship for Naples, intending there to rejoin her family. Events, however, fell out otherwise than she expected for by stress of weather the ship was carried out of her course to the desert island of Ponza, where they put in to a little bay until such time as they might safely continue their voyage. Madame Beritola landed with the rest on the island, and, leaving them all, sought out a lonely and secluded spot, and there abandoned herself to melancholy brooding on the loss of her dear Arighetto. While thus she spent her days in solitary preoccupation with her grief, it chanced that a galley of corsairs swooped down upon the island, and, before either the mariners or any other folk were aware of their peril, made an easy capture of them all, and sailed away. So that, when Madame Baritola, her wailing for that day ended, returned, as was her wont, to the shore to solace herself with the sight of her sons, she found none there. 
At first she was lost in wonder. Then, with a sudden suspicion of the truth, she bent her eyes seaward, and there saw the galley still at no great distance, towing the ship in her wake. Thus, apprehending beyond all manner of doubt that she had lost her sons as well as her husband, and that, alone, desolate and destitute, she might not hope that any of her lost ones would ever be restored to her, she fell down on the shore in a swoon, with the names of her husband and sons upon her lips. None was there to administer cold water or aught else that might recall her truant powers. Her animal spirits might even wander whithersoever they would at their sweet will. Strength, however, did at last return to her poor, exhausted frame, and therewith tears and lamentations, as, plaintively repeating her son's names, she roamed in quest of them from cavern to cavern. Long time she sought them thus, but when she saw that her labour was in vain, and that night was closing in, hope, she knew not why, began to return, and with it some degree of anxiety on her own account. Wherefore she left the shore and returned to the cavern where she had been wont to indulge her plaintive mood. She passed the night in no small fear and indescribable anguish. The new day came, and, as she had not supped, she was fain after thirst to appease her hunger, as best she could, by a breakfast of herbs. This done, she wept and began to ruminate on her future way of life. While thus engaged, she observed a she-goat come by and go into an adjacent cavern, and after a while come forth again and go into the wood. Thus roused from a reverie, she got up, went into the cavern from which the she-goat had issued, and there saw two kits, which might have been born that very day, and seemed to her the sweetest and the most delicious things in the world. And, having, by reason of her recent delivery, milk still within her, she took them up tenderly and set them to her breast. They, nothing loath, sucked at her teats as if she'd been their own dam, and thenceforth made no distinction between her and the dam, which caused the lady to feel that she had found company in the desert, and so, living on herbs and water, weeping as often as she bethought her of her husband and sons and her past life, she disposed herself to live and die there, and become no less familiar with the she-goat than with her young. The gentle lady thus leading the life of a wild creature, it chanced that after some months stress of weather brought a peasant ship to the very same bay in which she had landed. The ship lay there for several days, having on board a gentleman, Curado Malespini by name, of the same family as the Marquis, who, with his noble and most devout lady, was returning home from a pilgrimage, having visited all the holy places in the realm of Apulia. To beguile the tedium of the sojourn, Curado, with his lady, some servants, and his dogs, set forth one day upon a tour through the island. As they neared the place where Madame Baritola dwelt, Curado's dogs, on view of the two kids, which, now of a fair size, were grazing, gave chase. The kids, pursued by the dogs, made straight for Madame Baritola's cavern. She, seeing what was toward, started to her feet, caught up a stick, and drove the dogs back. Curado and his lady, coming up after the dogs, gazed on Madame Beritola, now tanned and lean and hairy, with wonder, which she more than reciprocated. At her request, Curado called off the dogs, and then he and his lady besought her again and again to say who she was and what she did there. So she told them all about herself, her rank, her misfortunes, and the savage life which she was minded to lead. Curado, who had known Arigetto Capecce very well, was moved to tears by compassion, and exhausted all his eloquence to induce her to change her mind, offering to escort her home, or to take her to live with him in honourable estate as his sister, 
until God should vouchsafe her a kindlier fortune. The lady declining all his offers, Curado left her with his wife, whom he bade see that food was brought thither, and let Madame Baritola, who was all in rags, have one of her own dresses to wear, and do all that she could to persuade her to go with them. So the gentle lady stayed with Madame Baritola, and after condoling with her at large on her misfortunes, had food and clothing brought to her, and with the greatest difficulty in the world prevailed upon her to eat and dress herself. At last, after much beseeching, she induced her to depart from her oft-declared intention never to go where she might meet any that knew her, and accompany them to Lunigiana, taking with her the two kits and the dam, which latter had in the meantime returned, and to the gentle lady's great surprise had greeted Madame Baritola with the utmost affection. So, with the return of fair weather, Madame Baritola, taking with her the dam and the two kits, embarked with Curado and his lady on their ship, being called by them, for her true name was not to be known of all, Cavriola, and the wind holding fair, they speedily reached the mouth of the Magra, and landing, hide them to Corrado's castle, where Madame Baritola abode with Corrado's lady in the quality of her maid, serving her well and faithfully, wearing widow's weeds, and feeding and tending her kids with assiduous and loving care. The corsairs, who, not espying Madame Baritola, had left her at Ponza when they took the ship on which she had come thither, had made a course to Genoa, taking with them all the other folk. On their arrival the owners of the galley shared the booty, and so it happened that as part thereof Madame Baritola's nurse and her two boys fell to the lot of one Messer Guasparino Doria, who sent all three to his house, being minded to keep them there as domestic slaves. The nurse, beside herself with grief at the loss of her mistress and the woeful plight in which she found herself and her two charges, shed many a bitter tear. But, seeing that they were unavailing, and that she and the boys were slaves together, she, having for all her low estate her share of wit and good sense, made it her first care to comfort them. Then, regardful of the condition to which they were reduced, she bethought her that, if the lads were recognized, it would very likely be injurious to them. So, still hoping that some time or another fortune would change her mood, and they be able, if living, to regain their lost estate, she resolved to let none know who they were, until she saw a fitting occasion, and, accordingly, whenever she was questioned thereof by any, she gave them out as her own children. The name of the elder she changed from Giusferi to Gianotto di Procida. The name of the younger she did not think it worth while to change. She spared no pains to make Giusfredi understand the reason why she had changed his name, and the risk which he might run if he were recognized. This she impressed upon him not once only but many times, and the boy, who was apt to learn, followed the instructions of the wise nurse with perfect exactitude. So the two boys, ill-clad and worse-shod, continued with the nurse in Messer Guasparino's house for two years, patiently performing all kinds of menial offices. But Gianotto, being now sixteen years old, and of a spirit that consorted ill with servitude, brooked not the baseness of his lot, and dismissed himself from Messer Guasparino's service by getting aboard a galley bound for Alexandria, and travelled far and wide, and fared never the better. In the course of his wanderings he learned that his father, whom he had supposed to be dead, was still living, but kept in prison under watch and ward by King Charles. He was grown a tall, handsome young man when, perhaps three or four years after he had given Messer Guasparino the slip, weary of roaming and all but despairing of his fortune, he came to Lunigiana, and by chance took service with Curado Malaspini, who found him handy and was well pleased with him. 
His mother, who was in attendance on Curado's lady, he seldom saw, and never recognized her, nor she him. So much had time changed both from their former aspect since they last met. While Gianotto was thus in the service of Curado, it fell out by the death of Niccolo da Grignano, that his widow, Spina, Curado's daughter, returned to her father's house. Very fair she was, and lovable, her age not more than sixteen years, and so it was that she saw Gianotto with favour, and he her, and both fell ardently in love with one another. Their passion was early gratified, but several months elapsed before any detected its existence. Wherefore, growing overbold, they began to dispense with the precautions which such an affair demanded. So, one day, as they walked with others through a wood, where the trees grew fair and close, the girl and Gianotto left the rest of the company some distance behind, and, thinking that they were well in advance, found a fair pleasance girding with trees and carpeted with abundance of grass and flowers, and fell to solacing themselves after the manner of lovers. Long time they thus dallied, though such was their delight that all too brief it seemed to them, and so it befell that they were surprised first by the girl's mother, and then by Curado. Pain beyond measure by what he had seen, Curado, without assigning any cause, had them both arrested by three of his servants, and taken in chains to one of his castles, where, in a frenzy of passionate wrath, he left them, resolved to put them to an ignominious death. The girl's mother was also very angry, and deemed her daughter's fall deserving of the most rigorous chastisement. But, when by one of Curado's chance words she divined the doom which he destined for the guilty pair, she could not reconcile herself to it and hasted to intercede with her angry husband, beseeching him to refrain the impetuous wrath which would hurry him, in his old age, to murder his daughter and imbue his hands in the blood of his servant, and vent it in some other way, as by close confinement and duress, whereby the culprits should be brought to repent them of their fault in tears. Thus, and with much more to the like effect, the devout lady urged her suit, and at length prevailed upon her husband to abandon his murderous design, Wherefore, he commanded that the pair should be confined in separate prisons, and closely guarded, and kept short of food and in sore discomfort, until further order, which was accordingly done, and the life which the captives led, their endless tears, their fasts of inordinate duration, may be readily imagined. Gianotto and Spina had languished in this sorry plight for full a year, entirely ignored by Corrado, when, in concert with Messer Gian di Procida, King Peter of Aragon raised a rebellion in the island of Sicily, and wrested it from King Charles, whereat Curado, being a Ghibelline, was overjoyed. Hearing the tidings from one of his warders, Gianotto heaved a great sigh, and said, Alas, fourteen years have I been a wanderer upon the face of the earth, looking for no other than this very event, and now that my hopes of happiness may be for ever frustrate, it has come to pass only to find me in prison, whence I may never think to issue alive. How, said the warder, what signify to thee these doings of these mighty monarchs? What part hadst thou in Sicily? Gianotto answered, Tis as if my heart were breaking, when I bethink me of my father, and what part he had in Sicily. I was but a little lad when I fled the island, but yet I remember him as its governor in the time of King Manfred. And who then was thy father? demanded the warder. His name, rejoined Gianotto. I need no longer scruple to disclose, seeing that I find myself in the very strait which I hope to avoid by concealing it. 
He was, and still is, if he live, Arigetto Capecce, and my name is not Gianotto, but Giusfredi, and I doubt not but, were I once free and back in Sicily, I might yet hold a very honourable position in the island. The worthy man asked no more questions, but, as soon as he found opportunity, told what he had learnt to Corrado, who, albeit he made light of it in the warder's presence, repaired to Madame Beritola, and asked her in a pleasant manner whether she had had by Arigetto a son named Giusfredi. The lady answered, in tears, that if the elder of the two sons were living, such would be his name, and his age twenty-two years. This inclined Corrado to think that Gianotto and Giusfredi were indeed one and the same, and it occurred to him that, if so it were, he might at once show himself most merciful, and blot out his daughter's shame and his own by giving her to him in marriage. Wherefore he sent for Gianotto privily, and questioned him in detail touching his past life and finding by indubitable evidence that he was indeed Giusfredi, son of Arigetto Capecce, he said to him, Gianotto, thou knowest the wrong which thou hast done me in the person of my daughter, what and how great it is, seeing that I used thee well and kindly, and thou shouldst therefore, like a good servant, have shown thyself jealous of my honour, and zealous in my interest. And many there are who, hadst thou treated them as thou hast treated me, would have caused thee to die an ignominious death, which my clemency would not brook. But now, as it is even so as thou sayest, and thou art of gentle blood by both thy parents, I am minded to put an end to thy sufferings as soon as thou wilt, releasing thee from the captivity in which thou languishest, and setting thee in a happy place, and reinstating at once thy honour and my own. Thy intimacy with Spina, albeit shameful to both, was yet prompted by love. Spina, as thou knowest, is a widow, and her dower is ample and secure." What her breeding is, and her father's and her mother's, thou knowest. Of thy present condition I say naught. Wherefore, when thou wilt, I am consenting that, having been with dishonour thy friend, she become with honour thy wife, and that, so long as it seem good to thee, thou tarry here with her and me as my son. Captivity had wasted Gianotto's flesh, but had in no degree impaired the generosity of spirit which he derived from his ancestry, or the whole-hearted love which he bore his lady. So, albeit he ardently desired that which Corrado offered, and knew that he was in Corrado's power, yet, even as his magnanimity prompted, so unswervingly he made answer. Corrado, neither ambition nor cupidity nor aught else did ever beguile me to any treacherous machination against either thy person or thy property. Thy daughter I loved, and love, and shall ever love, because I deem her worthy of my love. And, if I dealt with her after a fashion which to the mechanic mind seems hardly honourable, I did but commit that fault which is ever congenial to youth, which can never be eradicated so long as youth continues, and which, if the aged would but remember that they were once young, and would measure the delinquencies of others by their own, and their own by those of others, would not be deemed so grave as thou and many others depicted and what I did, I did as a friend, not as an enemy. That which thou offerest, I have ever desired, and should long ago have sought, had I supposed that thou wouldst grant it, and twill be the more grateful to me in proportion to the death of my despair. But if thy intent be not such as thy words import, feed me not with vain hopes, but send me back to prison, there to suffer whatever thou mayst be pleased to inflict, nor doubt that even as I love Spina, so for love of her shall I ever love thee, though thou do thy worst, and still hold thee in reverent regard. 
Curado marvelled to hear him thus speak, and being assured of his magnanimity and the fervour of his love, held him the more dear. Wherefore he rose, embraced and kissed him, and without further delay bade privily bring thither Spina, who left her prison wasted and wan and weak, and so changed that she seemed almost another woman than of yore, even as Gianotto was scarce his former self. Then and there, in Curado's presence, they plighted their troth, according to our custom of espousals, and some days afterwards Curado, having in the meantime provided all things meet for their convenience and solace, yet so as that none should surmise what had happened, deemed it now time to gladden their mothers with the news. So he sent for his lady and Gavriola, and thus, addressing first Gavriola, he spoke, "'What would you say, madam, were I to restore you your elder son as the husband of one of my daughters?' Gavriola answered, "'I would say that, were it possible for you to strengthen the bond which attaches me to you, then assuredly you had so done, in that you restored to me that which I cherish more tenderly than myself, and in such a guise as in some measure to renew within me the hope which I had lost, more I could not say.' And so, weeping, she was silent." Then, turning to his lady, Curado said, "'And thou, madam, what wouldst thou think if I were to present thee with such a son-in-law?' "'A son-in-law,' she answered, "'that was not of gentle blood, but a mere churl, so he pleased you, would well content me.' "'So,' returned Curado, "'I hope within a few days to gladden the hearts of both of you.' He waited only until the two young folk had recovered their wonted mien, and were clad in a manner befitting their rank. Then, addressing Giusfredi, he said, would it not add to thy joy to see thy mother here? I dare not hope, returned Giusfredi, that she has survived calamities and sufferings such as hers. But were it so, great indeed would be my joy, and none the less that by her counsel I might be aided to the recovery, in great measure, of my lost heritage in Sicily. Whereupon Curado caused both the ladies to come thither, and presented to them the bride. The gladness with which they both greeted her was a wonder to behold, and no less great was their wonder at the benign inspiration that had prompted Curado to unite her in wedlock with Gianotto, whom Curado's words caused Madame Baritola to survey with some attention. A hidden spring of memory was thus touched. She recognized in the man the lineaments of her boy, and awaiting no further evidence, she ran with open arms and threw herself upon his neck. No word did she utter, for very excess of maternal tenderness and joy but every avenue of sense closed she fell as if bereft of life within her son's embrace gianotto who had often seen her in the castle and never recognized her marvelled not a little but nevertheless it at once flashed upon him that twas his mother and blaming himself for his past inadvertence he took her in his arms and wept and tenderly kissed her with gentle solicitude, Gerardo's lady and Spina came to her aid, and restored her suspended animation with cold water and other remedies. She then, with many tender and endearing words, kissed him a thousand times or more, which tokens of her love he received with a look of reverential acknowledgment. Thrice, nay, a fourth time, were these glad and gracious greetings exchanged, and joyful indeed were they that witnessed them and hearkened while mother and son compared their past adventures. Then Curado, who had already announced his new alliance to his friends, and received their felicitations, proceeded to give order for the celebration of the event with all becoming gaiety and splendour. As he did so, Giusfredi said to him, "'Curado, 
you have long given my mother honourable entertainment, and on me you have conferred many boons. Wherefore, that you may fill up the measure of your kindness, tis now my prayer that you will be pleased to gladden my mother and my marriage feast and me with the presence of my brother, now in servitude in the house of Messer Guasparino Doria, who, as I have already told you, made prize of both him and me, and that then you send some one to Sicily, who shall make himself thoroughly acquainted with the circumstances and condition of the country, and find out how it has fared with my father Arighetto, whether he be alive or dead, and if alive, in what circumstances, and being thus fully informed, return to us with the tidings. Curado assented, and forthwith sent most trusty agents both to Genoa and to Sicily. So, in due time, an envoy arrived at Genoa, and made instant suit to Guasparino, on Curado's part, for the surrender of outcast and the nurse, setting forth in detail all that had passed between Curado and Guasfredi and his mother. Whereat Messer Guasparino was mightily astonished, and said, Of a surety there is naught that, being able, I would not do to pleasure Curado, and true it is that I have had in my house for these fourteen years the boy whom thou dost now demand of me, and his mother, and gladly will I surrender them. But tell Curado from me to beware of excessive credulity, and to put no faith in the idle tales of Gianotto, or Guisfredi, as thou sayest he calls himself, who is by no means so guileless as he supposes. Then, having provided for the honourable entertainment of the worthy envoy, he sent privily for the nurse, and cautiously sounded her as to the affair. The nurse had heard of the revolt of Sicily, and had learned that Argetto was still alive. She therefore banished fear, and told Messer Guasparino the whole story, and explained to him the reasons why she had acted as she had done. Finding that what she said accorded very well with what he had learned from Curado's envoy, he inclined to credit the story, and most astutely probing the matter in diverse ways, and always finding fresh grounds for confidence, he reproached himself for the sorry manner in which he had treated the boy, and by way of amends gave him one of his own daughters, a beautiful girl of eleven years, to wife, with a dowry suited to Arigetto's rank, and celebrated their nuptials with great festivity. He then brought the boy and girl, Curado's envoy, and the nurse, in a well-armed galliot to Lerici, being there met by Curado, who had a castle not far off, where great preparations had been made for their entertainment, and thither accordingly he went with his whole company. What cheer the mother had of her son, the brothers of one another, and all the three of the faithful nurse! What cheer Messer Gasparino and his daughter had of all, and all of them, and what cheer all had of Curado and his lady, and their sons and their friends, words may not describe. Wherefore, my ladies, I leave it to your imagination. And that their joy might be full, God, who, when he gives, gives most abundantly, added the glad tidings that Arigetto Capecce was alive and prosperous. For, when in the best of spirits the ladies and gentlemen had set them down to feast, and they were yet at the first course, the envoy from Sicily arrived, and among other matters reported that no sooner had the insurrection broken out in the island than the people hied them in hot haste to the prison where Arigetto was kept in confinement by King Charles, and dispatching the guards brought him forth, and knowing him to be a capital enemy to King Charles, made him their captain, and under his command fell upon and massacred the French whereby he had won the highest place in the favour of King Peter, who had granted him restitution of all his estates and honours, so that he was now both prosperous and mighty. The envoy added that Argetto had received him with every token of honour, had manifested the utmost delight on hearing of his lady and son, of whom no tidings had reached him since his arrest, and had sent, to bring them home, 
a brigantine with some gentlemen aboard, whose arrival might hourly be expected. The envoy and the good news which he brought were heartily welcome, and presently Corrado, with some of his friends, encountered the gentlemen who came from Madame Beritola and Guisfredi, and saluting them cordially, invited them to his feast, which was not yet half done. Joy unheard of was depicted on the faces of the lady, of Gisfredi, and of all the rest as they greeted them, nor did they on their part take their places at the table before, as best they might, they had conveyed to Corrado and his lady Arigetto's greetings and grateful acknowledgments of the honour which they had conferred upon his lady and his son, and had placed Arigetto to the utmost of his power entirely at their service. Then, turning to Messer Gasparino, of whose kindness Arigetto surmised nothing, they said that they were very sure that, when he learned the boon which outcast had received at his hands, he would pay him the like and an even greater tribute of gratitude. This speech ended, they feasted most joyously with the brides and bridegrooms. So passed the day, the first of many which Corrado devoted to honouring his son-in-law and his other intimates, both kinsfolk and friends. The time of festivity ended, Madame Baritola and Gusfredi and the rest felt that they must leave, so, taking Spina with them, they parted not without many tears, from Curado and his lady and Guasparino, and went aboard the brigantine, which, wafted by a prosperous wind, soon brought them to Sicily. At Palermo they were met by Arigetto, who received them all, ladies and sons alike, with such cheer as it were vain to attempt to describe. There it is believed that they all lived long and happily, and in amity with God, being not unmindful of the blessings which he had conferred upon them. End of Day 2, the sixth story.